This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal female criminals episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the Parcast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular Parcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes of these for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of mothers misbehaving. We often think of mothers as consummate nurturers who wouldn't hurt anyone. Today, we'll see that this isn't always the case. What makes mothers hurt the ones they love most, even their own children? Statistically, women are much less likely to commit violent crime than men. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, in 2018, only 18.3% of violent crimes were committed by females. That means that, when confronted with female offenders, we as a society are much more scandalized. Our disbelief that the softer sex can be involved in heinous crime extends to their treatment by the criminal justice system. Women are twice as likely to avoid incarceration if convicted. But when mothers do commit crimes, it can have a profound impact on their children. They tend to adopt their parents' delinquent tendencies. David P. Farrington, professor of criminology at Cambridge University, said of this generational trend, The fact that delinquency is transmitted from one generation to the next is indisputable. Professor Kevin Wright of the State University of New York at Binghamton also studied this trend. He said, Delinquents are more likely than non-delinquents to have delinquent fathers and mothers. Children with two parents with criminal histories were at extremely high risk of delinquency. In our clips today, we'll examine a variety of misbehaving mothers and examine how their criminal behavior impacted those around them. Through popular reality TV shows such as Dance Moms, we become acquainted with the idea of a stage mom. These momagers appear to be devoted to their children, committed to securing their future career. But under the surface lies manipulation and narcissism. Oftentimes, the road to a child star's success and fame is littered with exploitation and abuse. In this clip from Parcast original The Dark Side Of, Rose Hovick has convinced herself that her daughter June is a dancing prodigy destined for vaudeville. But Hovick's grandiose fantasies, obsession with success, and willingness to overlook the physical needs of her children are classic signs of narcissistic personality disorder. Rose saved up money to take June on regular trips to Tinseltown, but began to see Louise as an expensive nuisance. 
Once, she even tried to get rid of Louise by sending her off to relatives. If Rose's father hadn't found out about it, Louise may have been abandoned altogether. After that, Louise began working hard to be as perfect as possible so that her mother would love her. She began to learn how to sew costumes and write better lyrics, all at the ripe age of six, in hopes of making herself indispensable. But all of Rose's attention went to baby June. She was convinced that June was a prodigy and would fly into a rage at anyone who disagreed. Once, the family was able to meet Anna Pavlova, one of the most famous ballerinas in the world. Rose asked if June was a natural dancer. When Pavlova insisted it was too early to tell as June's precious feet had not yet developed enough to support her, Rose swore at her and said she knew nothing. Only days later, Rose appealed to the L.A. Times for a write-up on June's abilities. In the interview, she claimed that Pavlova had endorsed June. She even billed June's act as Baby June, the pocket-sized Pavlova. L.A. life wasn't easy on June, who was just three or four. However, Rose was still telling people she was only two since it sounded better. Rose worked June hard whenever they were in L.A., Their days were packed with auditions, performances, and intense practice. June complied stoically, never arguing with her mother, even as this activity slowly broke her young body. Rose was convinced it was the only way to get into the movies, and June did whatever mother asked. Rose would stay in Hollywood until the money ran out, then go home to Seattle and beg for more from her father. She always seemed to find more money, and the girls never got a break in their intense rehearsal schedules. They should have been starting school, but Rose saw no need for that. She felt schools would taint her babies, and besides, they wouldn't have the time to rehearse or the freedom to travel and perform. Rose was also neglecting basic hygiene needs, such as teaching the girls to brush their teeth. She believed, strangely, that brushing would remove the enamel from their teeth and cause them cavities. Meanwhile, Louise's twisted teeth were beginning to cause her pain, but Rose didn't want to spend any money on them. Money was often tight, since it all went to costumes and travel. Rose often stayed with her father instead of paying for an apartment, but it wasn't enough. So she found another way to stretch the checkbook. She and the girls began stealing clothing, jewelry, and valuables from other performers while backstage. This was truly the dark side of Rose Hovick's maternal nature. But it paid off. Both June and Louise went on to have successful careers in Hollywood. But their success was marred by the scars left by their mother. Louise, later known as Gypsy Rose Lee, suffered from dental issues for the rest of her life. June had trouble maintaining healthy, stable relationships and was divorced three times. The girls were famous, but at what cost? While Rose Hovick was undoubtedly abusive towards her children, she was able to rationalize it by her end goal. All she wanted was for her girls to be successful and famous. But in our next clip from Con Artists, we'll see that not every criminal mother has such altruistic intentions. Sante Kimes was simply looking for a new partner in crime, so she chose her own son, Kenneth Kimes Jr., dragging him into countless robbery, forgery, and murder schemes. 
Like Rose Hovick, Sante controlled every aspect of her son Kenneth's life from an early age. She completely isolated him from kids his own age, homeschooling him and hand-selecting the few neighborhood children he was allowed to play with. In doing so, Sante positioned herself as the center of her son's life, a singular source of knowledge and comfort. By the time Kenneth and Sante were arrested for murder in the early 2000s, Kenneth's life was no longer his own. He wouldn't utter a single word without his mother's approval. It wasn't until 5 a.m. on Tuesday, July 7, 1998, that the NYPD made an important connection. Officers working 82-year-old Irene Silverman's disappearance realized that their number one suspect was already in custody. The missing tenant, Manny Guerin, was actually 23-year-old Kenny Kimes. Even though both Kenny and his mother, 64-year-old Sante Kimes, were found with Irene's property on their person, none of the officers had made the connection. They were too focused on their real goal, nailing the Kimeses for the murder of David Kasdan. That afternoon, the police brought Sante back in for questioning. Even though Kenny was the main suspect, he'd already demonstrated that he wouldn't answer any questions without his mother's approval. Just Mirandizing him the night of his arrest had taken almost an hour. With every question, he shouted through the open door to the next room where his mother sat handcuffed. Mom, what should I do? Is it okay? Only after she yelled back her consent would Kenny agree to each portion of the standardized warning. Asking him for details on Irene Silverman was pointless. Instead, Officer Tommy Hackett tried to supplicate Sante. He wasn't here to accuse her or charge her for the disappearance. He just wanted to find Irene. But Sante was never the type to relinquish the upper hand. If she had information that he was after, he would have to pay for it somehow. Quid pro quo. And until Sante figured out what she wanted, she played dumb. How did she know Irene was actually missing and the cops weren't trying to pull a fast one on her? Hackett countered with the front page of the New York Daily News with Irene's face under the headline, Socialite Missing. But she continued to brush him off. I don't know what you're talking about. You should really put your energy into finding this woman. Maybe she's out walking her dog. Eventually, her blasé attitude made Hackett lose his cool. He snapped at her. She needed to help them find this poor 82-year-old woman. After his outburst, Sante refused to say another word without her lawyer. Con artists Sante and Kenneth Kimes were eventually convicted for the murder of Irene Silverman and 117 assorted charges of robbery, forgery, and grand larceny. Then the pair was extradited across the country to stand trial in another murder case. Sante vehemently maintained her innocence, but her son knew that they were likely to be found guilty, and California was a death penalty state. 
To save both their lives, Kenneth broke the first tenant of con artistry. He told the truth, pleading guilty to the murder of David Caston and implicating his mother in the crime. On the day he confessed to the police, Kenneth wrote in his journal, Tattle tell, tattle tell, too bad you're going straight to hell. I am no longer the son who will do anything for his mother. Coming up, we discuss what happens when a mother's misbehaving reaches the extreme, the murder of her own children. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So far, we've seen mothers who surround their children with criminal activity. But what happens when they direct that behavior to the children themselves? In our next clip from ParCast original Serial Killers, we cover Nanny Doss, who killed 11 people by poisoning between the 1920s and 1950s. Nanny's first victims were her own children. Though Doss's later murders were financially motivated, it is unknown why she killed her own children. It's possible that Doss lashed out at her children because of the actions of their father, Charlie Braggs. When Charlie committed adultery, it's possible that Nanny took her revenge on their innocent children. Well, this makes sense because Nanny retaliated with infidelities of her own and the constant stress of trying to keep her household together as barely more than a teenager herself drove Nanny to drink and smoke regularly. Even at this stage in her life, Nanny's husband saw signs that she was a dangerous woman to be around. Years later, he would tell reporters, When she got mad, I wouldn't eat anything she fixed or drink anything around the house. So it's pretty clear that the idea of getting poisoned by his wife wasn't far from his mind. Or perhaps from a more cynical standpoint, Charlie only claimed he suspected his wife was a killer years after the fact in order to cash in on the hype of her arrest. Well, whether Charlie saw it coming or not, his caution wasn't enough to save his two middle daughters. That's right. Nanny Doss' first two victims were her own children, both of whom were toddlers at the time. In early 1927, Charlie Braggs returned home to find two of his daughters writhing in agony from what Nanny told him must have been food poisoning. The girls died shortly thereafter, and police evidently believed Nanny's story as neither girl was given an autopsy. Charlie, however, wasn't so certain of his wife's innocence and took their oldest daughter, Melvina, and fled, leaving baby Florine behind in Nanny's care. So, Vanessa, why do you think Nanny chose her own daughters as her first victims? 
Well, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of explanation from Nanny herself as to what sent her over the edge, so to speak. We also don't know why she chose to poison only her middle children and leave her oldest daughter and much more vulnerable infant daughter alive. But for possible motives, we can always look at statistics. FBI data shows that while the murder of very young children is sadly more common than that of children over five years old, it differs in that the murder is usually carried out by a family member. In fact, 71% of murders of children five and under are committed by a family member, usually a father or mother. The FBI has even estimated that that number may be higher since deaths from SIDS can look a lot like deaths from suffocation and deaths from a vicious beating can look like an accidental fall. Serial killer Nanny Doss eventually confessed to killing four of her husbands, her mother, her sister, her grandson, and her mother-in-law. However, she never confessed nor was charged with the poisoning deaths of her children. It's possible that even when faced with a clear pattern of homicidal behavior, the idea of maternal filicide was a bridge too far for investigators of Nanny's crimes. Because, as we established earlier, society has a hard time accepting that women are capable of some of the most violent crimes. Yet our final clip from Parcast original Female Criminals covers one of the most brutal instances of child murder by a mother. Gertrude Banaszewski was not her victim's biological mother, but her caretaker. Gertrude cared for 16-year-old Sylvia Likens and her sister Jenny while their parents were on the road as traveling carnival workers. They wanted Sylvia and Jenny to have a more stable childhood. Therefore, they left the girls in Gertrude's care, promising her a weekly fee for her services. At first, Gertrude treated Jenny and Sylvia like her own children. But when the checks from Sylvia's father stopped coming, Banaszewski grew resentful and took it out on Sylvia. Gertrude used similar tactics to gain sympathy from her neighbor, Phyllis Vermillion. The Vermillion family had moved next door a couple of months earlier, in August. In fact, the two houses were barely four feet apart. Mrs. Vermillion was looking for a sitter for her young children. She'd heard around the neighborhood that Gertrude sometimes babysat, so she visited Gertrude at the beginning of September. As she and Gertrude drank coffee and chatted in the front room of the Banaszewski house, Mrs. Vermillion noticed Sylvia sitting at the dining room table sporting a black eye. Mrs. Vermillion asked Sylvia about it, but Sylvia only hung her head and didn't speak. According to Mrs. Vermillion, Gertrude shouted at Sylvia to go into the kitchen, saying, quote, just get out of my sight. I don't want nothing to do with you. I just hate you, end quote. Gertrude then told Mrs. Vermillion that Sylvia was three months pregnant. When Sylvia went into the kitchen, Paula filled a glass with hot water and threw it in Sylvia's face. Sylvia screamed in pain and started crying. Paula then boasted to Mrs. Vermillion that she was the one who gave Sylvia the black eye. Gertrude told Sylvia to go upstairs. She also told Sylvia that she was going to kill her because she was pregnant. Mrs. Vermillion didn't know quite what to do, but she didn't feel it proper to get involved. It was mid-October when Mrs. Vermillion saw Sylvia again. This time, Sylvia had another black eye and what Mrs. Vermillion called a busted mouth. 
Paula again bragged she had beaten up Sylvia, this time with the excuse that Sylvia had hurt her little brother. Mrs. Vermillion noted a significant difference in Sylvia's demeanor between the first time she saw her and now. At the beginning of September, Mrs. Vermillion thought Sylvia seemed frightened. Now, in the middle of October, she said Sylvia, quote, looked like she did not care whether she lived or died, end quote. Eventually, with the help of her own children and two neighborhood boys, Gertrude Banaszewski tortured Sylvia Likens to death. It is said that Gertrude targeted Sylvia because she envied her. Sylvia had everything Gertrude did not, youth, looks, and health. Gertrude had multiple failed marriages, miscarriages, and carried many insecurities and self-hatred. To Gertrude, Sylvia represented the young, pretty, confident woman that she longed to be. Gertrude's son John was 12 at the time of Sylvia's murder. He served two years in prison for his involvement in her death and was the only perpetrator to show remorse publicly about the crime. He called his mom a selfish, self-centered woman and believes he and the other children participated due to fear of Gertrude. While the mothers in our clips today committed a variety of crimes, their behavior is equally uncharacteristic with what we perceive as maternal. It flies in the face of our perception of a mother as someone who is forever warm, nurturing, and self-sacrificing. But as we've demonstrated, the bonds of motherhood only extend so far. Sante Kimes was willing to make her son Kenneth a murderer to further her own fraud schemes. Nanny Doss may have sacrificed her own babies in the name of revenge against their adulterous father. It's possible that Nanny believed what she was doing was best for her children. Once she discovered her husband's infidelity, she may have believed that not living at all was better than living in a broken home. Researchers classify this kind of killing as an altruistic filicide. And while Gertrude Banaszewski wasn't Sylvia Likens' biological mother, her actions can also be classified as filicide. Sylvia likely died from fatal maltreatment filicide after months of abuse and neglect. Her death was unanticipated. Gertrude didn't want to outright kill Sylvia. She wanted to punish her. But whether intentional or not, the result was fatal. These women show that criminals and murderers come in all shapes, commit a variety of horrible acts, and respond to a multitude of names, including mom. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Mothers Misbehaving. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on Victims Who Escaped. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, The Dark Side Of, Con Artists, Serial Killers, and Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.